Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Good news, we now have a COVID-19 vaccine. So how will we distribute it? That's our topic today. And stick around after the interview. Cynthia Duraco is here to highlight some amazing people and organizations who've been knocking it out of the park this past year, keeping science and the public good front and center. We're recording this on December 14th, 2020, just days after the Pfizer vaccine was approved in the United States. At this very moment, healthcare workers are getting ready to receive the very first vaccine doses. Finally, a welcome milestone in a pandemic that's killed 300,000 people in the U.S. But vaccine supply is limited and will be for many months. So how can we make sure those few doses are distributed in a way that's equitable and makes sense? And after healthcare workers, who should get vaccinated next? This question is best answered by medical and public health experts, like those on the CDC's Vaccine Advisory Committee, which in early December recommended that the first round of vaccines go to healthcare personnel and residents of long-term care facilities. In developing these guidelines, the CDC committee also received input from the public and from four professional groups. Today's guest is a member of the National Academies, one of the professional groups that advised the CDC committee. Dr. Ana Diaz-Rue is Dean and Distinguished University Professor of Epidemiology at Drexel School of Public Health. She researches health inequity and the social factors that influence health, and sits on the National Academy's Committee on Equitable Allocation of Vaccine for the Novel Coronavirus. This committee ultimately came up with seven recommendations for vaccine distribution that they sent to the CDC. Today, she shares what those recommendations are, how they were decided, and what ethical principles guided their recommendations. And note, This interview took place in late November before the CDC had officially released its COVID vaccine guidelines. So we discussed the recommendations the CDC will make in the future tense, but the principles, criteria, and goals that guided those recommendations are evergreen. Anna, thank you so much for making the time to join me on the podcast today. Sure, it's a pleasure to be with you. Before we dig into how a a vaccine for COVID-19 should be distributed. Can you give me an idea of roughly what percentage of the U.S. population the vaccine will cover when it is available? Well, the truth is we don't know for sure. What we do know is that it's very likely that the quantities initially available will be limited. And so will only cover a small proportion of the population, maybe 10, 15%, if that. And uh, gradually, as uh, production scales up, we'll be able to uh, expand the number of people that we can give the vaccine to. And so this is why it's very important for us to have a thoughtful strategy and a plan for how, how the vaccine should be rolled out when it's available so that it really maximizes the benefits of the vaccine for the society and also importantly i think that it you know that is is that it's distributed in a way that is equitable and fair 
In the preface to the report, I was surprised and really pleased to see this statement, and I quote, in embarking on our task, the committee started with equity. Inequity has been the hallmark of this pandemic, both locally and globally, end quote. And it goes on to talk about racism, poverty, and bias. So can you tell me how this played out in the development of the framework? Yes, the committee um, really began by identifying the fundamental principles that we should use as a society to guide the distribution of the vaccine. And it, it identified three ethical principles. One is that, obviously, we want to seek the maximum benefit uh, for all. The second principle is the principle of treating everyone with equal respect and recognizing that every person has equal dignity, worth, and value. And last but not least, to your point, the key ethical and moral, moral principle of addressing health inequities. As we know, the pandemic has made very visible uh, these inequities in health that have that characterized many, many diseases, not just COVID-19, but certainly in the case of COVID-19, it has been very clear that the, the risk of acquiring the disease and of having severe disease and dying of the disease is not equally distributed and it's concentrated in groups that have historically been disadvantaged, discriminated, uh, and have had um, you know, a number of uh, factors that place them at higher risk. And so we've seen increased higher risk among Black Americans, Native Americans, Latino and Latina populations. And so uh, the committee felt very strongly that the allocation of the vaccine needed to address these inequities explicitly in one way or another. So w walk me through the, the framework. So the committee identified initially the, the guiding principles, the ethical principles that I mentioned earlier, and in addition, some procedural principles that have to do with fairness, transparency, so explaining very clearly what it is that we're doing and why, and also basing the distribution on evidence. And so using these overarching principles, the committee identified an overarching goal, which is to reduce morbidity and mortality, as well as the negative societal impact resulting from COVID-19. So it's really about balancing reducing morbidity and mortality and also reducing transmission and also reducing the societal impact that comes from the fact that people are not able to work, for example. And so balancing these different criteria, the committee proposed a series of phases that would be gradually implemented. The, the first phase includes sort of a jumpstart phase where the vaccine would initially be distributed to high-risk healthcare workers and first responders and then in a second phase to people of all ages who have underlying conditions that place them at higher risk of severe disease, as well as older adults living in congregate settings or crowded settings that we know have been very vulnerable to this disease. So that's the first phase, and that would probably be 5 to 15% of the population. In a second phase, the distribution would be broadened to include teachers, K-12 teachers and school staff and child care workers so that children can go back to school. Also, critical workers in high-risk settings, uh, food supply, public transportation, etc., who are essential to society and who are at 
significantly higher risk of exposure. And also people of all ages with comorbid conditions that place them at moderate risk, as well as people in homeless shelters, prisons, jails, and staff, and older adults in general. And in a third phase, the vaccine would ex- would be distributed to young adults and children, although we should note that the trials that are currently underway do not include children, so we'd have to wait for results in children. Uh, workers and other occupations important to the functioning of society, but were, that were not included in the prior phases. And then in the fourth phase, it would really be everyone living uh, in the U.S. And within each of these phases, the, the committee also recommended that the distribution prioritize access for geographic areas that are socially vulnerable as defined using there are a variety of different indices that can be used to target neighborhoods that are socially vulnerable because of socioeconomic conditions, because they include race or ethnic groups at higher risk, because of the kinds of occupations and jobs that people have, etc., because of poverty, because of crowding, etc. So within each phase, the committee recommended that those vulnerable neighborhoods be prioritized. As part of the framework process, I noticed that there was space for public comments. And some of the comments critiqued the focus on the individual risk factors over population groups. For example, one commenter suggested that Native Americans and Alaska Natives be designated as a high-risk population and you know, have that group included in the highest risk category. So how did the committee handle those comments and ultimately finalize the framework in the, the way that it, it did? Yes, this is a very important question. First, I should say the committee had, there was an extensive process through which we obtained public comments, both written and through open meetings. And all comments were recorded and the committee had conversations about the comments that we received because we really wanted to hear what people thought and react and how they reacted to the preliminary version of the framework that was distributed. So in thinking about how to capture these inequities by race and ethnicity and social and economic factors as well that we have seen for COVID-19, the committee really tried to capture the underlying causes of these differences that have to do with people's working conditions, with the kinds of jobs that they have, with the kinds of neighborhoods that they live in. And so we tried to capture those in the framework itself by prioritizing people who have uh, who work in essential jobs, many of whom tend to be lower income and belong to race or ethnic groups that have, have shown to have higher risk in this pandemic, by also prioritizing people with underlying conditions, which we know are related to social conditions. And that's why they tend to be higher in in certain race or ethnic groups, because the structural racism and inequality are drivers of these underlying conditions themselves. And we also try to capture the inequities in addition to prioritizing certain groups in the framework, also through the use of the social vulnerability index or some similar index to target communities and neighborhoods at particularly higher risk. The committee thought it was decided not to include a race ethnic category within the framework specifically because we really wanted to get at these underlying drivers and build them into the framework. We were also concerned that 
that there could be mistrust in communities if we we said that the vaccine should be targeted at a particular race or ethnic group, given the long history of mistreatment by the medical community of, of many of these populations. Um, we were concerned that people would feel targeted in a way that would, would, would discourage them from wanting to take the vaccine because they would feel targeted. We also wanted to have a framework that addressed social determinants broadly. And so that's, that's why the committee uh, chose to go down this path where we're really trying to capture the underlying structural drivers of these inequities rather than labeling a particular group. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. If you'd like a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way you can help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. Well, you, you raise a really interesting an interesting issue, which which is the issue of public trust and confidence in a vaccine. We're developing multiple vaccines at warp speed, and there may be, I'm, I'm assuming there likely will be more than one vaccine. How can people be confident that the vaccine is safe and effective? And how do we, how do we handle more than one vaccine? Yes, this is a critical issue. And, you know, as we know, for many very valid historical reasons, there is distrust among many communities, certainly African-American community or Native American community, Latino, Latina community of medical research for very good reasons, because because of the long history of abuse and, and, and mistreatment and lack of information. And in addition, because there's uh, the sense that the vaccine uh, approval process is being done very, very quickly, that we could be cutting corners to try to um, get a vaccine quickly for political reasons that has not been accurately tested. And so it's, it's very, very important that the scientific community, and I think all scientists who, are, who have been speaking about this have emphasized this point, that we ensure that the process that we're following to test and approve a vaccine follows the most rigorous scientific standards. And then, and this is something that the, the um, committee talked quite a bit about, any vaccine allocation strategy needs to be accompanied by a, a very deliberate and planned and well-funded strategy to engage communities in the process of, of distributing the vaccine and also a very clear communication to everyone about the benefits and the risks of any vaccine. What are some of the top-line recommendations that the committee came up with? The framework includes seven recommendations. The first recommendation, of course, is that this, this framework, which, as I said, is based on 
very clear ethical and procedural principles be implemented across the United States. We do, of course, recognize that local authorities will have to operationalize this in different ways. And so this is intended to be not a rigid, but a flexible guiding framework, but that the spirit of it and the the key principles should be adopted, including the principle of mitigating health inequities. The second recommendation is that we should really take advantage of existing systems, structures, and partnerships across all levels of government to distribute the vaccine and provide necessary resources for this. So this means not necessarily creating a completely separate parallel system, but rather take advantage of the systems that have been used historically, for example, to distribute vaccines to children very effectively. A third recommendation, and this is was very is very important, is that the vaccine should be available with no out-of-pocket costs to anyone, to all people living in the United States, regardless of their immigration status. A fourth recommendation is that it's very important to create a vaccine risk communication and community engagement program, because for all the reasons that that we have talked about, clear communication about the risks involved and the benefits involved is with participation of communities is very, very important. And this will require a very deliberate strategy and also include a vaccine promotion campaign, which was the fifth recommendation. And then also to develop, you know, to build an evidence base to identify what are the most effective strategies for vaccine promotion and acceptances. So learn about what we can do to encourage people to take the vaccine. And the the last recommendation is related more to global issues. The focus of the report is primarily on the distribution of the vaccine in the United States, but the committee did recognize that it's very important to support equitable allocation of the vaccine globally. And this means that the U.S. government should really commit to engaging in global efforts uh, around the vaccine, which means participating in international initiatives to, to distribute uh, globally, such as the sometimes something called the COVAX facility, which is a a program that brings together government, governments, philanthropy, healthcare organizations to real to support the development and distribution of the vaccine across the world, and also to engage with the WH, WHO, which unfortunately the U.S. has recently disengaged with. So, uh, so uh, the committee felt that this was very, very important, both from the point of view of the the U.S. specifically, because obviously controlling the pandemic globally is in the interest of the United States, but also most importantly and fundamentally, because it's really the morally right thing for the United States to do. And the committee even suggested that the U.S. set aside a small proportion, say, uh, of the vaccine supply for global distribution as well. So is there a way that we can be sure that the guidelines are followed? The best way is to create consensus around this kind of approach and for many different voices to advocate for this kind of approach. There are a number of other committees. CDC has its own vaccine advisory committee that that will be developing specific recommendations. So we hope that we hope that our proposal would be will be considered by this committee. We hope that state, territorial and local health Departments will consider the committee's recommendations as well as they develop their own specific plans. We hope that various community groups will become engaged 
and also and you know and use and leverage this framework as a way to advocate for an approach that that follows these principles about fairness, equity, and transparency in in how the vaccine is distributed and and talked about. So, do you think ultimately the framework will be? effective in increasing people's trust in science again, in federal science and institutions? I certainly hope so. We really, we really have to think, of course, of science and public health science in particular as something we can all lean on as a society to support the best way forward. And I hope that frameworks like this that are based on the scientific evidence, but that are also grounded in very strong ethical and and social principles related to fairness and equity and justice will motivate a greater acceptance of science as as a way to inform the things that we do as a society. Of course, it's not only science, it's science plus our values, right? values as a society. And I think this is something that this particular framework really tried to capture, sort of integrate evidence and science as we, you know, the the information that we have right now, which of course is continuously evolving in the case of a a disease like COVID-19, but sort of combine that with a very strong principled approach to what we should be doing together as a society to protect health and reduce health inequities. It's so important what you just said. I could not agree more. As I was following the development of the framework, one of, I I don't remember who on the committee said this, but they said that you started with the ethical questions and then did the science rather than doing the science and then putting an ethical framework around it. And I thought that was so interesting and so important Yes, that that that's exactly the way it was, and it was a a wonderful process to be part of, exactly for that reason. Reason because it really started with a very strong foundation and our values and our ethical principles, and then sort of went from there. So it was uh, it was wonderful to be part of. Yeah, yeah, that's a great model. (laughs) Yeah, to to um, yeah for others to use. Well, Anna, thank you so much for the work that you're doing to save lives and disseminate science-based information. We we love that here. We need voices like yours front and center right now. Um, it's been really a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And now it's time for some good news. It's almost over. We're about to put 2020 in the rearview mirror. Here on the podcast, we're trying to end the year on a positive note, and where better to look for inspiration than to ordinary people doing extraordinary things for science. Every year, UCS nominates a group of individuals or organizations who have done what's right in the service of science and the public good, even when it would be easier to stay quiet. We call these folks science defenders for obvious reasons. And we're devoting this episode's Science for the Win segment to celebrating the wonderful people who are 2020's UCS Science Defenders. Welcome our winning correspondent, Cynthia DiRocco, to the mic. Thanks, Colleen. It's my pleasure to introduce four individuals and one group of individuals who spoke up for science in 2020. 
a year when doing so literally saved lives. First up is Dr. Gorb Basu, a primary care physician who's fighting hard for his patient's health both inside and outside of the clinic. He's been working to make sure conversations about COVID-19 also include the related issues of air pollution, poverty, racism, and climate change, writing an op-ed and hosting regular virtual discussions on these topics. Dr. Basu is also helping other clinicians, doctors, nurses, social workers, psychologists, and so on, learn to use their medical expertise to advocate for a more equitable world. Up next is Luz Combo Garcia, a PhD student in immunology living in Minnesota. She grew up in Puerto Rico and stays connected to her family, friends, and colleagues there. So when dangerous misinformation about COVID-19 began spreading around the island, she was ready and able to intervene. In podcasts, news stories, and blogs, on radio shows and webinars and live Q&A sessions on social media, she provides accurate and accessible information about the pandemic for people in Puerto Rico. Her science communication skills and willingness to help have undoubtedly saved lives. Our next defender is Dr. Baronda Montgomery, a professor at Michigan State University. With a team of fellow botanists this summer, she co-organized the social media campaign hashtag Black Botanists Week to connect Black people who seriously love plants. After mass protests against police violence and the nearly tragic encounter between a Black birdwatcher and a white woman in Central Park, Dr. Montgomery wanted to celebrate curiosity, creativity, and enthusiasm among Black scientists and non-scientists and remind the world that, as she says, Black scientists are out there. Moving on, we have Ingrid Paredes, a PhD student studying chemical engineering in New York City. Knowing that students majoring in STEM fields are less likely to vote in elections than students in other majors, she and her team at the March for Science New York worked to get out the STEM vote this year. She helped organize online events to inform people about science policy issues and provide information about voting. Because as she says, science is always on the ballot. And finally, our last winner is actually winners, plural. COVID-19 data collectors. In the absence of consistent federal, local, or corporate leadership, these people helped establish a record of the pandemic that likely kept countless people safe. We're recognizing people like the teacher in Kansas who created a spreadsheet monitoring COVID-19 infections in schools, the public health official in Florida who was fired for reporting accurate data in a dashboard tool she created, the journalists who created national databases of pandemic stats, the professor who kept tabs on infections in meatpacking facilities, and many, many more volunteer public health heroes. Congratulations to each of our 2020 Science Defenders, and thank you to all of them for being awesome. I'm Cynthia DiRocco, and this has been Science for the Win. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science Podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, especially our Partners for the Earth the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org slash partners. 
Special thanks to Dr. Ana Diaz-Rue. Science Defenders was brought to you by Cynthia Duraco. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe, wear your masks, and see you next time.